This episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is brought to you by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting Roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, Hoosier Devil offers a variety of services including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit them on social media or at HoosierDevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Who's your devil? Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Best known as the banjoist for the award-winning bluegrass group The Grass Schools, Kristen Scott Benson comes from a long line of musicians. A South Carolina native, she has been playing the banjo since the age of 13. Her career has resulted in multiple International Bluegrass Music Association Banjo Player of the Year awards, critically acclaimed solo recordings, and the 2018 Steve Martin Award for Excellence in Bluegrass and Banjo. Humble, grateful, and super talented, Kristen credits points of her success as being a god thing. On this episode of Walls of Time, host Daniel Mullins talks with Kristen outside the world-famous station in Nashville prior to a performance at the historic venue with the Grasschools. Enjoy this field interview with Kristen Scott Benson, Bluegrass Banjo Trailblazer. So, Miss Kristen, I know that when you were younger, you played more than just banjo, which a lot of people aren't aware of that. What all instruments did you play as a kid? Just mandolin, but I was about five years old. Okay. And my grandfather was a professional mandolin player. Oh, really? He played for Whitey and Hogan and okay. the Briar Hoppers, and they were a, a really successful act in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they had a big, kind of like Flatten Scruggs uh, here in Nashville on WSM, they had a big radio show on WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, they would do that radio show each day, and then they would go do shows uh, each night. So, you know, in the 40s, he was even a bit pre-bluegrass. He was oh, wow. even before the birth of bluegrass in 1946. So um, early 40s, that's what he was doing. And so I had his influence, and then um, that's my maternal grandfather. But when my parents met... Uh, they had that in common. My mom didn't play, but her dad did. So that was kind of a common bond. So my dad was always playing around the house. So it was just always there, you know, and available. And mandolin is little. So when I was five, I started playing. Um, and how long was mandolin kind of your primary instrument before you switched to the banjo? Uh, it was a primary instrument until about 13. But while I, it was the only instrument I was playing, but it wasn't a huge focus for me. I loved sports and I loved a lot of other things. And what I sports played. did you play? I was mainly a softball player, but also also basketball. Broke the, my pinky finger playing basketball. Oh, wow. It's very crooked, as you can see. <laughs> but I say I got an extra fret. If the folks <laughs> could watch us, they'd see that it, it got broken and not set the right way so that I get an extra fret. But. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was really into sports and uh, was good in school and, and liked a lot of things. But when I was about 13, I started playing the banjo, and that's really when I got serious and focused. How did the banjo bug bite you? Very clearly, I saw Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, and um, they were in Dahlonega, Georgia at the festival there, and Scott Vessel was playing banjo. And it absolutely killed me. The band was Scott Vessel, Curtis Vessel on um, bass, and Russell Moore. And one of the things that That's caught stout me, right oh there. my gosh, it's still the music that just excites me when I hear it. But 
um, they all walked on stage and there there was a lot of excitement because uh, this was a brand new band. I don't know if you know that story, but, you know, Doyle was um, kind of on top and he switched his entire band. So a lot of the people in the, the crowd were excited to hear this new group. And when they walked on stage, I was a little kid and they were all young. And that and that's kind of what got my attention is that, hey, these guys are young and they started playing and they were amazing and I just loved Scott Vestal's banjo playing. So I started asking for a banjo um, then. I think I was nine, maybe at that wow. time, about eight or nine, and uh, wanted a banjo ever since I saw Scott Vestal play. So you were 13, you uh, see Quicksilver for the first time, and, uh, and, you, and you get a banjo. How old were you when you got your banjo, 13? Yeah, so I saw that configuration of Doyle Lawson actually when I was about nine, I okay. think eight or nine. And then um, when I was 13, I got a banjo. And a funny aside story, but my parents, because they were so supportive and great, they got me a banjo when I was nine. It was one of those little short neck banjos maybe you've seen. Um, and within a month of getting that, our house burned down. Oh. So that was clearly not a priority um, to get another banjo. So it was a few years later when I got one and got started. But that's when I got serious about playing was I was about 13 and got a banjo and I was able to really pursue it. What about the banjo specifically uh, drew you to that instrument? Because you said you'd played mandolin but you never Mm -hmm. really sounds like you never really had like a passion or a drive. I totally agree and I think it was uh, twofold. I had never really heard uh, bluegrass like that before so it was the culmination of hearing Doyle and his band and and just the power and the drive and authority that the whole band had. And then also um, within that group, the momentum that the banjo provided. It was just like the, I just remember being fascinated because the banjo was so much a part of what uh, pushed the band forward. And and it just had a, a real percussive ongoing thing. I just thought it was the neatest thing. Like an engine thing. almost, yes. yeah. And so that's what attracted me to it. And Scott was so great. I mean, he sounded, and I think I had seen prior configurations of Doyle Austin's band, but I was just too little to notice. And this was the first time I ever really paid attention to bluegrass, and I loved it. But it was definitely um, the, the propulsion of the banjo, the roll, that subdivided all the beats that I thought was really neat. After uh, you be, you began learning uh, to play the banjo, who were some of your other big influences on the instrument? Well, then it, it went just broke wide open because uh, Sonny Osborne was still very much in, a, in his prime. And he was playing the festivals that I would mainly go to were Norman Adams festivals in the southeast. The Osborne brothers were always on those uh, shows. So once I started playing the banjo... I was just captivated because it's like a a series of puzzles and you just put these roles together in these puzzles and they just amount to the music that you heard on the record and it was just magical. And uh, so I started playing the banjo. Then, of course, I'm noticing all the banjo players. So right away, I fell in love with um, Sonny Osborne because I was able to see him live you know and, and could i loved the band it was easy for me to sing along with bobby osborne because he sang so high and i love their songs i love their material and right away i could identify oh my gosh this is a great 
uh, banjo player. What about Sonny's picking in particular made him so intriguing for you as a young picker? Well, uh, it was a couple things with him. One, his character. I mean, he was such a... He was entertaining to watch whether he played or not. So it made the the Osborne Brothers shows. I love their music. And then he was a really entertaining guy. Um, And then I listened to him play, and it was mainly his backup. He was the first guy uh, that just really enamored me as a backup player with banjo. And in Osborne Brothers music, the banjo is featured a lot as the backup player because it's his band, right? So if Bobby's singing and it's a verse, probably Sonny's going to fill those holes. And I just felt like he had a really kind of a lyrical approach to that backup. It was clear, even as a kid, I could tell he listened to what Bobby sang, and then he played off of that. And uh, he would do a lot of single-string fills and just sassy sounding things you yeah. know with a with a lot of a lot of personality a lot of playing. personality you heard his personality through his playing and uh so i was fascinated by it so he was the first huge influence and then of course i go to earl scruggs like everyone does but the first two it was scott you know initially and then the guy that i was able to see at these festivals all the time um would have been sunny beginning to play the banjo as as a, as a teenage uh, girl, there probably weren't many other female banjo pickers at the time. I mean, there's, I mean, there's not a ton now, but back, I mean, I guess there's a lot more now than there were even just 10 years ago. But uh, when you learn learning to play, did you get any funny looks being a girl that was a banjo player? You know, I'm just so blessed because I get that question all the time and I look back on it and, um, you know, one, kudos to my dad and my grandfather who were so encouraging and they never said, you know, you're a girl, you shouldn't do this. They never um, withheld anything from me because of being a girl and wanting to do this. But it never occurred to me that really? you couldn't. It just never crossed my mind. Because, see, I wasn't, you know, I didn't start playing thinking that it would be a career. I just wanted to play. I just yeah. wanted to hear that sound. And and I didn't think anywhere past that. So, uh, you know, they encouraged it. And then... Um, I just never thought that I had to see someone else doing it in order to do it. Yeah. You know, because you're just thinking about the next step, which is playing the music and being in love with that. And then, you know, slowly and surely it, it led into a career. But, you know, I, I still wonder if I'm doing this as a career. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the ultimate uh, goal was always just to be able to play. Yeah. Um, what are some ways that you think um, being a woman has, has helped you? with well, your approach to the banjo. I mean, it, I would be disingenuous if I didn't say that it automatically differentiated me. You know, when I when I first started, when I really got out and started playing, I was um, 19, and I was playing with Larry Stevenson. And I, I owe Larry Stevenson a, a great debt of gratitude because he took a chance on me in that, um, you know, no one was hiring girls at the time, especially 19-year-old college student girls to be in their band. And uh, he gave me a shot, and I will always appreciate him for that. And I, I certainly didn't realize that it was even unique when he did that. I was just glad to have the you job. Just, I didn't yeah. think this was anything uh, different or uh, unusual. But um, I think what it did right away is if you see, you know, 20 guys from 20 bands at a festival and one, you know, young girl playing banjo, immediately I, w- I became memorable yeah. You know, so I think it would be wrong of me to not uh, say that 
you know, part of my success has been a result of being female. So I certainly can't, you know, cry the blues because yeah. <laughs> it's been a positive for me. How did you get the job with Larry anyway? It's it's a great story. You had mentioned Mike Bubb yeah. earlier today, you know. Uh, so I saw Mike earlier this afternoon. I don't know if you did, but I, I was able to see him. And um, I didn't know him very well, but and I can't even remember where I played around him. But Larry Stevenson actually called the guy that I was dating at the time, called and offered the job to him. And he didn't do it because he was playing with Larry Sparks. And I remember saying, dang, I wish you would call me. Well, um, Mike Bubb, Larry Stevenson asked him, is there anybody, you know, who may uh, be a good fit for this job? Dale Vanderpool was leaving. And he said, there's actually a girl who's just moved to town uh, to go to Belmont University here in Nashville. And um uh, and Larry, I think Larry said, oh, I don't know about that. But anyway, um, I ended up calling him. I can't remember if, I, I can't remember if Larry called me, but I bet I called him and said, you know, I'd love to try out. And I went to his apartment. He lived, as it turns out, only one exit away from me on I-24. Oh, and I uh, went and tried out. The band at that time was Matthew Allred and Bowie Beach and Larry and me and I and uh, got the job on the spot but i think uh the first mention at least was from mike bubb wow and i didn't even know mike that well so i i certainly yeah. appreciate that <laughs> how long did you play with larry the first time i played for five years and um so this would have been like 95 to 2000 um and then i went back after i played with larry cordell and my son had just been born so that would have been 06 and i stayed a couple years so a total of seven years Having that be your first time as a as mm -hmm. a professional in a professional band touring band, um, what were some eye opening experiences for you? You know, my eyes were just wide open the whole time. I was so happy to be able to play, and I think I just uh, just tried to drink it all in and and just was so happy. It didn't matter where we were playing. I was just happy to be there and. Uh, those guys were um, so incredibly nice to me. And I've been, again, just so blessed because I've never traveled with a guy ever in any band that hasn't just been very uh, welcoming and supportive and endearing. So I have, you know, there are no Me Too stories. I don't yeah. have any. You yeah. know, it, it's just been wonderful. But uh, when I think back to when I was young, I, you know, I had some musical epiphanies. One of the things I realized is that it is absolutely valuable. I think the bulk of our work is done at home, but there really is, until you're busy and you're out playing a lot in a band, there are some skills that you can't uh, get until you're doing it. And like it's what? by experience only. Like, as far as really knowing, I mean, I could, I've spent countless hours playing along with records and stuff at home, but until you're in a live situation, really knowing how to play in appropriate places and and complimenting a singer and working up new material and instead of copying what's already on record but yeah. you know being a part of that creation process all of that stuff is so fun but until you get the opportunity to do it you can't simulate it yeah. so there there was just a lot of maturity and then moving to nashville in general uh, you know most people who are serious about it enough to move here um it's really good because the average player is great, you know, and so I think you just grow naturally 
after you move to Nashville and you start playing in bands and, you know, you might do a private party with this makeshift group and that makeshift group is probably going to be pretty amazing. So I think it was a huge um, benefit to me to relocate here and just raise the bar of musicianship to a level that um, you couldn't find in any local area except maybe Nashville. When, how old were you when you first moved to Nashville? Well, as soon as I graduated from high school, so I would have been 18 because, you know, I graduated in June and started college in August. Did you Were you already plugged in with some of the pickers here in uh, New Music City? Just a few. Very, very few. I was actually playing with um, Danny Roberts' uh, wife, Andrew, Andrea Roberts. Yeah. yeah, when I was in high school, I played with um, a band called Petticoat Junction, yeah. and that was an all-girl group, and I met... Uh, Andrea Roberts when I was still in high school in my senior year I played uh, with her in Petticoat Junction and so I knew the three girls in that band I knew Andrea and as a result Danny and uh, Sally Jones as a result Chris Jones and then uh, Gail Rudisil who is now um, Gail Johnson and so I knew those three people, and that was it. Wow. Yeah, and uh, moved here, though, and they were great. And, of course, you just have to know a few people, and it just extends to a family. And then just start just growing from there. Yeah. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not overpowering but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. What were some things that you learned? At, at, did you do the music program at Belmont, like the music business? Yeah, I minored. I started as a music business major and uh, switched to the music business minor for two reasons. I interned as part of that program, which uh, is very valuable. And what I discovered, so much of the scene here in Nashville, you know, is built around country music. Now I'm sure there's a big, you know, contemporary Christian um, faction as well, but at the time, it was very much mainstream uh, country music. And I, I discovered when I interned that I didn't like that. You know, I, I honestly would have just rather had a job at like an insurance agency or whatever. So I switched <laughs> didn't my be ba- part of the Nashville yeah, machine. It didn't yeah. do much for me. So and I'm glad that I did that to discover that. So I switched from a music business major to a music business minor and ended up majoring in marketing, which I felt like was it was my backup plan. going to school so I felt like that was a more applicable degree where I could spread out and do other things if I wasn't able to play what were some ways that you think that's that's benefited you as a bluegrasser by going and getting your education about music business and marketing and some of the business tactics that a lot of times uh, musicians kind of just put on the back burner because they want to focus on picking and having fun yeah I hear you um you know what it does I think more than anything it just grows your awareness so you have 
an aerial view of the music business. It's not that you necessarily know a whole lot about anything, but you kind of just know um, just, you know, the the bird's eye view of what goes on. And really, bluegrass is its own thing. There's, um, you know, certainly people, you're a good example. Oh, you're fine. You're a good example of, um, you know, of who we need more of in bluegrass, people who are really smart articulate they think well about the music they they know a lot about the music and they present the music well and we need more of those people um and but as far as like the classes that you take i felt like it was much more geared toward the mainstream kinds of music but some of that stuff is just valuable no matter what you do like your publishing classes and copyright law and you know just some of those things i, I think it's good just to kind of you know get that overall idea of what goes on but i can't i I think it's been more so um you know just with a marketing degree you certainly understand you know how how many times do you need to touch someone you know whether through a mailing or or now it's all social media and stuff you know how many touches does it take to make that impression you know you at least have the mindset back there that you uh that sits there that that kind of speaks to you when you're trying to do things i've been lucky as not being a band leader I haven't had to be nearly as focused on that I just kind of play the banjo and hope that people like you and uh, other folks are sort of taking care of that how did the opportunity to to work with the Graskels come about that uh, is Sonny Osborne really actually I'm so thankful for him um, I heard through the grapevine as often things travel I had heard that that Aaron McDerris was leaving the Graskels and the Graskels didn't even know yet, but I heard he was leaving. He was making the move to Rhonda. So I called Aaron and said, hey, you know, if you don't mind, he and I are the same age. We had met as kids at a festival in Arkansas. I was playing there, and uh, he was playing as well. And we hit it off, so we didn't know each other well, but we knew who the other was. And um, and he had played uh, for Larry Stevenson, and so had I. So we had some things in common, and I just said, if you don't mind, when you leave, please throw my name in the hat. So after that, I kind of left that alone because I wanted to give him time to talk to these guys. Uh, but I told Sonny Osborne, I said, I knew he was close to both the Terrys. I knew he was very um, possessive and protective of the Graskels because yeah. he was very proud of, of those guys. And uh, I said, when the, the word is out, you know, I want to try to get this job and he was so great he said of the guys in the band who do you know the least and I said probably um Jamie Johnson would be the guy that I would know the least maybe Terry Smith and Terry Eldridge but probably Jamie he said well that's the one you called in and he called the two Terry's and I had known Danny see from high yeah, school yeah. when I was playing with Andrea so all those things put together uh just kind of resulted in it so I did my work to to try to get the job and then he gave me the recommendation and Danny knew me from way back so it was just kind of a culmination um and I think that we have spoken before that it was pretty cool for you because you know we spoke just a little bit ago about how you were a huge Osborne Brothers yeah. fan and you said you grew up watching Terry and Terry play with Bobby and Sonny back that's exactly when right. you were a little kid that's exactly right the whole all of my um you know from nine ten on Every time I would uh, go to a festival, that band would be playing, and it would be those two guys. So I did grow up um, 
watching them on stage and that's just a real cool personal thing for me now to be in a band with them now i know that you're a woman of faith and so to see all these quote-unquote coincidences Mm -hmm. come about that helped you get this job whether that is you know seeing terry and terry as a kid you know you watch sunny he becomes your mentor he helps you recommendation Mm -hmm. you know one of your first gigs is with andrea her husband happens to be in the band Mm -hmm. so it kind of helps you out you know that uh, you just happened to have known the departing banjo player and you guys had happened to had filled the same role Mm -hmm. in a previous band um do you think that was a god thing the way that all that was orchestrated yeah i mean i think it all adds up to a god thing and uh I'm so appreciative of getting to do this. You know, so few people can say this, but, and and my husband and I remind us, uh, we remind each other of this if ever we get, because, you know, this life is hard and it, it's easy to get jaded. And I think my husband and I, who also plays, I think uh, we've done a good job not being that way. You know, even though there is a grind, I mean, by the time John Bryan with the Grass Schools, when he and I get home, uh, tonight we will have been up 24 hours you know to play so those kinds of things wear you out but when we remember that if you had been you know if, if God had parted the sky and said hey you know when you're 15 years old this is what you're going to get to do it would have far surpassed anything we would have dreamed yeah. and and that we we never have lost that and so rarely is there a show that passes that I say that I don't say thank you Jesus and it it I mean it so much even though I do it almost every show I mean it every time Lord thank you for this I I can't believe that you've allowed this and I'm just so appreciative because you know what the bottom line is regardless of the hardships involved you know if we stepped out of the way there'd be plenty of people who would give anything to have the opportunity to stay up 24 hours to do what we're doing today And, and that's not lost on us wonderful how do you think that your that your faith uh impacts the way that you approach music and approach your job Mm -hmm. that's a great question um well as far as um i get the question or i don't so much anymore but i used to get the question all the time you know how do you interact with all guys uh being a christian i'm sorry being a girl is always the question and uh i always thought you know, it's not about that. It's about being a Christian because those standards will keep you safe far more than society standards for women or whatever. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure that it um, is. Thankfully, it just becomes such a part of you. That's just kind of what you're doing all along. But I will say that, uh, you know, being a musician is such a personal, passionate um, emotional thing. It, it's not the kind of job where you can just check in and check out and detach from it. It's part of who you are, and you know that you're unable to do it without uh, his gift and, uh, you know, just trying to give the glory back to him. And uh, I firmly believe we all have a platform, and it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that I wear anyone out with it. But I, as, you know, sometimes just being that quiet light that's just there. Mm-hmm. You know, we have an opportunity as musicians to really interact and know people and, and essentially live with people within bands and, and be in all kinds of situations that a pastor may never see. So, you know, it's just a matter of we routinely pray, you know, Lord, just help us be 
your presence in any of these situations. And, uh, you know, we don't even know really the impact of that, but that's what we hope to be is, is just his representative and wherever we happen to be at that time. You mentioned we, and you mentioned your husband, Wayne, uh, Wayne Benson of Third Time Out. Um, what are some pros and cons on having a husband who is also a professional bluegrass musician? The uh, biggest pro, which no one thinks this would be the case, but everyone says, gosh, do you guys ever see each other? And in fact, he and I see each other far more than most couples because they're, you know, up at 7, off to work at 7.30, and they get home at 5 or 5.30, and they go to bed, and then they have Saturday and Sunday, and that's it. And uh, we're the opposite of that. We have 24 hours a day with each other when we're home, and we both teach a lot. So we're teaching, but we're doing it at home, and uh, we're together. And then on Friday, Saturday, part of the day, Sunday, we're apart. So it's the exact opposite of most people, but we are convinced that we have a lot more time together as a couple than most people have. So that's one of the biggest pros, and that's one that most people don't understand or, or they're surprised assume, by. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they assume, oh, you're both gone all the time, you know, yeah, but it's really not you're gone at way. the same times. And that's right. then during the week, yeah. It's really not that way. Another big pro is that um, we both um, understand the other one's desire to pray, uh, to pray, to play, because uh, by worldly standards, there are a lot of reasons not to do it. You know, if you just looked at a lot of the uh, hard, cold facts of uh, what this business means, uh, people would think you're insane and, and you should Particularly <laughs> bluegrass, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there there's not a lot of uh, ration. You can't rationalize uh, some of these uh, elements that are there. But we understand it, and, and we're supportive of that. I think um, the biggest con is no health insurance. I don't have a sponsor. I, I don't have a great guy, you know, that has, I mean, a guy that has this great government job, you know, with <laughs> health insurance and that kind of stuff. So we have to figure all that out on our own. But it's a great life. We're so blessed. Awesome. So when you're a young girl and you see Scott Vessel for the t- first time and that light bulb goes off, What's it mean for you now? Because I've seen this happen where young girls will come up with a banjo and, you know, you were, you may have been that light bulb moment for them. And they want to grow up picking the banjo like Chris and Scott Benson because they saw that, you know, you kind of broke that glass ceiling in a way for them to do that. And I've seen it before. I saw it at Sam Jam just uh, last year. Some girl came up with a banjo and wanted you to sign it. What's that like for you? Well, I certainly understand it from their perspective because, you know, one of my solo records I recorded at Scott Vestal's, and I was terrified going in because he was such a, um, I admired him so much. And, you know, I've been asked a lot, we all do, like, what's the biggest thing you've done? What are you proudest of? What was whatever? And for me, it's without a doubt getting to know my heroes. You know, I remember the first time J.D. Crow called me by name. You know, and, and I'm, you know, recording a, an album at Scott Vestal's house. And, and I remember one time during that, he, you know, he said, you want to get that pull off? Because he's a banjo player, you know, and like before I could even say it, just getting to work with him, those are the things that matter. So, for instance, I met a young guy at Spigman today, uh, not a girl, but a 15-year-old boy, Baker Northern. I met him. and That's uh, a cool name. It's a cool name, isn't it? That's, That's why I remember name. it. I, I said so, too. I'm like, I can remember that. 
but he played Dear Old Dixie for me, and it does my heart so much good. I'm also, last year and this next coming year, I'm teaching at the Baylor Fleck Blue Ridge Banjo Camp. Yeah. Seeing tons, now there's all ages there, but seeing tons of kids who are um, full of potential. And so to me, it doesn't matter if it's a girl or a boy. When I see a young person, if I can spend just enough time to to maximize that moment with them, it's it does me just as much or more good uh, for them because I absolutely remember the people who did that for me yeah. when I was young. You mentioned the Bella Fleck uh, banjo camp, and it was while um, teaching at one of those camps that news came to you that you were the recipient of the 2018 Steve Martin Banjo Prize for Excellence in Banjo. Is that correct? It's actually not quite correct. Okay. Uh, so I taught the banjo camp in August, and then um, Bela was filming a Daily and Vincent Christmas special here in Nashville. Okay. And he asked me and Allison Brown, They did a. he wanted to do a trio uh, banjo thing for the show. So he got me and Allison Brown to play with him. So we did this trio version of Jingle Bells. And that, again, going back to that uh, original thing of getting to be around your heroes. I mean, those are two of my huge heroes. And just hanging out with them, that would have been enough, you know, the story. <laughs> but uh, so we got together and uh, practiced a little bit. The next day we, we did the taping. It was a PBS Christmas show taping for Daily and Vincent. So we played that. Then the next day, he kind of tricked me, and he said, why don't you come over and we'll talk a little bit about camp. So I did, and uh, that was the guys, because he excused himself and walked upstairs, and when he came back, he had Allison Brown and Noam Pekelny and uh, Allison's husband, Gary, and then Bela's wife, Ab- Abigail, came down. So uh, when they all walked down together, you know, that's when I thought. Did you think you were getting an intervention? I didn't know what was happening, but they didn't make me wait long. It was just a few seconds. But they came down, and, you know, I was unsure. And uh, and then Allison told me right away what was going on. So so maybe even cooler than being at camp, I was at, a, you know, his house yeah. with Allison Brown and Noam Pekelny. And, uh, and Abigail Washburn is a super cool banjo player. So, uh, you know, they it was, it was great. I do think that that award probably... Uh, stemmed a little bit from being at camp because I'd never had the chance to be with Bela or Tony Trishka and some of these folks that uh, I've admired for so long but I've never just been in the the same air you know we just never have been in the same circles so getting to know those guys uh, you know probably helped well and then several of your heroes are on that board and have been recipients of that as well as someone that started off as a little girl watching Dole Lawson and Quicksilver, <laughs> what did it mean to get the most prestigious award that the banjo has like ever had? It's just totally beyond anything you ever think of. You know, I, I never, ever aspired to uh, win IBMA. It just never occurred to me. Um, I just never thought I was good enough. I never thought people knew who I was enough. It was just never... Uh, even in my realm, the realm of possibility. And, uh, you know, and so when I got nominated the first time, I was shocked by that and, and so thankful, but absolutely shocked. And then this was just even more so that way. I, I just, you know, looked at that as something for, you know, the super elite or whatever. And Scott won that. Scott Vestal yeah. won it the year before. And and when he did, it was like, gosh, that's awesome. Yay for Scott. You know, so, but yeah. never, ever did I think, oh, one of these years. I'll never, I never thought that. 
You just it, it just never just never yeah. even was there. No. Wow. That, yeah. Not at all. <laughs> That'll buy a lot of Dual Austin Quicksilver CDs, yeah, won't it? <laughs> it does. And if I didn't already have them all, then uh, <laughs> then that's what I'd do with it. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. What do you like to do in your spare time when you're not playing the banjo? Well, there isn't a lot of spare time these days. My spare time seems to be just more projects because our life is pretty much um, teaching through the week and then playing on the weekends. And then, as you uh, know, Wayne and I have a son who's 12 now. And, I mean, that's it. That's your life, pretty much. And um, But I'm working on my second book for Hal Leonard, the Hal Leonard Company. And I'm really excited about it. It's called 25 Great Banjo Solos. Oh, wow. And, uh, and they, they have a whole series. So it could be jazz guitar solos or saxophone solos. And they wanted to do one for banjo. So the part that I'm so excited about is I'm getting to interview these heroes of mine. Oh, wow. And I get to, you know, I know a lot about most of them anyway. And I get to really ask these targeted questions that I'm excited about. And I'm learning a lot. I've learned so much about even the ones that I've done that I thought I knew a lot about anyway. I'm learning way more about them. And really, one of the coolest things has been, you know, I just did an interview with uh, Alan Mundy and Bill Emerson. You know, nobody might not have interviewed them in the last few years. And their perspective is going to be different now than it was uh, 15 years ago. Oh, totally. And and it's been interesting to me to get their perspective on things, even though they're both still out and they're still playing. You know, what's the banjo mean to you now? Now that, that you're looking back on this amazing career that you've had, what's it mean? So I'm enjoying the heck out of that. And that's taken up a lot of my... Uh, so-called free time Uh, but really it's uh, you know we're trying to get our son on the lake as much as possible and we're all family based you know so it's it's just be with our family it's every chance we get it's so fitting because your family has a lot of bluegrass but bluegrass is is likened to a family it is yeah why do you think that uh that bluegrass is is unique in that aspect that it's so kind of you got such a family feel. I agree. I, I'm not sure that it's unique, uh, but it's definitely true. And one thing that I, uh, so our son, um, Hogan, is 12 now, but when he was 8 or 9, he decided to um, fall in love with bass fishing, which means nothing to us. We had no idea. He asked us to go to this tournament that was on Lake Hartwell in, in uh, South Carolina. So I took him, having no idea, and the meet and greets. I'll never forget this. Um, there's a guy with a nicely wrapped, huge um, 
bass boat wrapped. His truck is wrapped just like buses are, you know. <laughs> and uh, he's he was sponsored by Old Spice, and he's pulling out pallets of deodorant, and he sets up a tent and puts the deodorant on the tent, and then he, he apologizes to the line, and he runs and puts his fishing jersey on. And then he comes back, and he's super cool to Hogan and all the people on and I'm I'm texting Wayne, who wasn't there. This is exactly like bluegrass. Yeah. And our experience with this world, <laughs> yeah. it's just like bluegrass. So I, Might as well be Mayberry's finest coffee sitting I there. Yeah. Know. Yes, I've hauled many pallets of uh, Mayberry's finest products before to the record <laughs> table. But um, so I think there are definitely other things that uh, that you can liken it to. But what bluegrass is more than anything. I think is this the artists are accessible there's absolutely no division um between the crowd and the artists so you know while it may take a lot of the mystique away it creates a bond and it's a small enough community you can really not know everybody but you kind of can you yeah. you can almost know at least, at least about exactly. mo- yeah yeah and uh and you know when i met the kid at spigman today um the young guy baker you know i want to encourage him and and everybody has that mentality so i just really think that it's a group of um people who are devout in how much they love to listen and support the music and people who are devout in how much they want to play the music because we can't not do it i mean if you can stand to do anything else you should i really believe that but if you cannot stand to be away from this music, uh, then there are plenty of listeners and, and committed audience members uh, that y'all can you can share that yeah. with them. But it's very much a grassroots kind of thing with um, you know with not much division between you know a very successful player and and the audience. It's like we're all in it together. What are some of the most important or impactful ways? that bluegrass musicians and artists can spread this music to the next generation? Boy, that's a good one. Um, I think for most of us, it starts in the home, you know, and when you grow up with people who uh, love this music, even if it's just as a listener, I think early exposure, you know, is really important. And another thing that I think is surprising to people, if uh, kids get exposed to it and they start going to things and they see the enormous uh, amount of young people who are into it, you could easily not know about that. It's like yeah. there's this underground world of bluegrass, and uh, and there are a lot of these worlds that are just not mainstream enough that you'll miss them unless you seek them out. But if you seek it out, um, I think there's a lot to be excited about. So just like fishing for us with our son, we don't know anything about it. We're not necessarily in love with it. But, boy, we're seeking it out for his sake. And if you expose your kid to anything musical and then you find they have a passion and a knack for it, if you will encourage that, there's a huge uh, welcoming world available with this this music that will just bring them in and, and just be a great positive experience for that young person. How does this music and... and listening to it, playing it, being uh, involved in it, absorbing it, how does that affect you on a spiritual level? Hmm. That's a good question. I I think it's, um, well, I mean, part of it is just self-centered in that I'm so incredibly grateful that I'm able to do it. And 
So I'm always coming to God with a posture of thankfulness that that he's allowed this and and given it to me and you know I never foresaw getting to do it I really didn't I I never even um, I mean I came to college in Nashville I did all the right things to make it possible but I didn't have any assurance that any of it would work and I just give all the credit you know and the glory to him so you know that's probably the the biggest part of it it's just this underlying thankfulness that that stays there I'm still in all that that I get to do it you know and if you can say that I'm 42 now and as a 42 year old if you can say that as a veteran having done this as long as I have gosh what a gift you know that is and a uh, few people can feel that way really feel that way about their career and uh, we already pray for it for Hogan whatever it is we don't know what it is but you know, Lord, please let him be passionate about what he does because it's uh, it can make or break your life. Yeah. You know? Have you seen folks that, that do this that may not either have the perspective you do of gratefulness or they just don't have the passion? Definitely, and uh, usually lose them. I remember Lynn Moore said something to me that um, it, I loved her, so it, it didn't like make me mad but it took me off guard uh, I was talking to her one time and I was in my 20s I, w- I was pretty young maybe 25 and um, she made the comment um, you have to be 30 before you count it was something like that and uh, it didn't make me mad at all but I, I didn't notice it and she said um, if you're 30 and you're still doing it you stand a chance yeah. and if you're 40 and you're still doing it you're probably you know going to be one of us but and it's true the attrition rate of people in their 20s um very few are doing it when they're 35 you know so i think that there are a lot of reasons for that you have to set your life up kind of to enable this you have to you know make smart decisions that let you afford basically to be able to play you have to afford to be able to play bluegrass so you have to you know create a lifestyle that will make that possible but also you know it, it's just the only ones who are left by the time you're my age are the ones who i mentioned before they just can't stand to do it it's just part of uh of who you are and the thought of not doing it just would feel so unnatural you know and uh, i think bayla fleck i heard him say one time in an interview if, if you can do anything else you should this should just be for the people who who need it that much and and love it that much. So the less passionate folks, for whatever reason, usually fall away by the time you're my age. Does it does it bother you to see people blessed with opportunities to play this music and not be grateful for them and and not view the fact that they're able to be a professional bluegrass musician and. Uh, just kind of be humbled by that yeah it's rare you know to get to do this so sometimes I just think gosh if you know how much of it is posturing you know just to complain or 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 just to um, you know moan and whine and we're guilty of that of you know the some of the things that all of us wish were better Uh, but if you really are uh, that jaded I just think we'll quit then let someone do it who wants to be here I mean that at this point in my career you know and I love working with the Graskels and one reason why 
is because, um, you know, John is our youngest guy and he's about 28. So he, he is a young fella, but, uh, Adam and I are very middle-aged and the three founding guys are, you know, mid late fifties. There's no, um, body incredibly young in the band there, you know, there's no 18 year old or whatever. So I feel like we kind of enjoy a shared commitment that, um, that isn't, I mean, we've seen, you know, incredibly successful bands and their lives are young and and then life happens and it, and it takes them different directions and that's fine. It's absolutely fine. And I admire the people who see that and, and make that move. The people you got to, uh, you know, look out for the ones who stay, even though their heart isn't in it, because you're kind of robbing that opportunity from someone who would feel a bit more pure about it. We were, uh, we were talking before we recorded this interview about, uh, the Uber driver Mm -hmm. that you just met. Amazing guy. And I think it's pretty cool that, you know, we were able to have a conversation about, about gratefulness and grateful for opportunities. Um, I mean, just in general, you get to play the banjo and then you were talking to this Uber driver who had such an amazing story. And I'm sure stuff like that are, are just great reminders that God puts in your path to remind you like, Hey, you get to play the banjo. Oh my gosh. And, and so the story just to fill everyone else in, I was just in a car with a guy I could tell he wasn't from here. And I said, hi James, you know, what's your name? And, or, I mean, where are you from? And he said, uh, Egypt. And without knowing anything about me, I said, Egypt, you know, what, what's your story? And he kind of laughed and said, well, it's only a seven-minute ride, you know. And I said, well, give me the shortened version. And uh, his family became Christian and uh, certainly were uh, persecuted to the uh, point of death. And he was able to be here with his uh, very young family and uh, live in safety now. So... You know, as thankful as we are for these things, to hear a story like that really puts things in perspective because we we cannot fathom uh, the literal life or death scenarios that uh, people like him have had to face. So to be in a car with him on the way over, you know, to uh, to play this this job tonight, it's just for one, I felt incredibly uh, unified with him, united. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that bond, and I, I saw it as a great opportunity to hopefully encourage him and, uh, and let him know that I was so glad he was here and that he was safe. Uh, but it definitely puts things in perspective. There's no doubt about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Miss Kristen. Thank you, I Daniel. appreciate it. I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so glad we have you on our side. Kristen Scott Benson, our special guest on this episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. When you think of leading ladies in bluegrass music, Kristen is one of the first names that always comes to mind. Five-time IBMA Banjo Player of the Year, including in 2019, recipient of the Steve Martin Prize for Excellence in Banjo and Bluegrass Music, and one of the kindest people in the bluegrass music business. Yeah, I've had the uh, great fortune to work with uh, Kristen on several projects, including uh, ones we've done here at the Mountain Home label for the Graskills, as well as her most recent solo project called Stringworks. Uh, we were with her doing uh, video and marketing and all kinds of efforts with that uh, project from the very um, beginning of it, and just watch that project take life, become a critically acclaimed uh, album, 
and uh, to see uh, the well-deserved accolades that Kristen has gotten both through her solo work and um, her work with the Graskills. It's been uh, a pleasure uh, to be able to have a, a chance to support her and her music these last several years. And like you said, the five-time IBMA Banjo Player of the Year, she just um, is a fantastic person and just an incredible musician to watch, especially in the studio. You know, I've uh, worked with uh, doing promotional videos for her and the Graskels and just had a you know a video camera right on her playing her banjo in the booth. And when you really look at the intricacies and the preciseness and the precision of and and the creativity of her banjo playing it is uh it's really something special both to see and hear so hats off Kristen, one of uh, my all-time personal favorites oh absolutely she is such a fantastic banjo player she takes it so seriously and it shows in every note that she plays and uh, sonny osborne's going to be our our guest next time on the podcast but i've heard sonny say it before someone uh he made a comment that someone once told him that man Kristen plays that banjo great for a girl and he was quick to correct them and say no Kristen plays that banjo great for anybody there's a reason she's one of the most celebrated banjo players on the face of the earth today because she's uh she takes it seriously and she plays it the way it's supposed to be played i i was at a bluegrass festival uh a couple years ago and the Graskels uh, were helping close the show out, and she did Up This Hill and Down as an encore, and I thought I was going to fall in the floor because that banjo just hits you right between the eyes, and it's just just the real deal. She's one of the best, and she's one of those people that every time you get to see Kristen, it always makes your day because she's so sweet and so kind. She was so generous and gracious uh, to fit time into her busy schedule to record this interview with me. We recorded it in her car outside of the station inn before she played a sold-out show at one of Nashville's most historic bluegrass music venues. Hearing about her early influences like uh, Dorlos and Quicksilver and the Osborne Brothers, Oh, it, it made it uh, extra special when she got to talk about when she got to work with the Graskels and work with uh, two of the cats that she saw working with the Osmer brothers at a young age, uh, Terry Smith and Terry Eldridge. Uh, she's uh, still one of the best banjo players on the circuit today. And hearing about uh, her testimony and how her faith has influenced her career, I thought was very special as well. I thought that was special too. And Kristen never hesitates to comment and give uh, thanks uh, for uh, where she is in life and acknowledge um, her faith. And uh, I think that's another special part about her. Uh, but yeah, I mean, working with her, uh, there's no one nicer. Um, it, she has a very keen understanding of music. You know, she's a banjo player. She talks about coming up playing the mandolin. She talks about her uh, uh, musical history with her family. And, um, you know, we, I've also heard her talk just about music in general, and she just, just has a really um, just special understanding about um, the complexities and um, what things kind of go together to make great music. And I think if you listen to her um, solo projects or work with the Graskels, we're going to put a, a bunch of this music up on our uh, Spotify playlists, but you'll recognize that intricacy, a lot of her own uh, compositions on the banjo, things that she's you know, written herself. I think you can really get a great understanding of how just an intelligent, sophisticated player 
Kristen is. Kristen Scott Benson points to one of her heroes, Sonny Osborne, in this interview. As I mentioned earlier, Sonny of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame will be our special guest next time uh, for part one of a two-part interview with one half of the world-famous Osborne brothers. Growing up in the Dayton, Ohio area, you kind of have to be a fan of the Osborne brothers. So that's the part of the country where I'm from, southwestern Ohio. That's where Bobby and Sonny grew up and cut their teeth at the bars and honky-tonks in uh, in Dayton, Ohio. You know, some industrial strength bluegrass. The music from Bobby and Sonny is among my favorite of all time. So it was a real treat to get to, to sit with Sonny on a rainy Saturday afternoon and talk about his storied career. That's next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. So folks, don't miss it. You need to subscribe uh, to our podcast and, and where are some of the places they can find the walls of time bluegrass podcast ty everywhere they listen to podcasts currently it's on apple music it's on stitcher it's on spotify uh, most places that you listen to podcasts where you can find walls of time uh, you can also follow us on social media at walls of time podcast facebook walls of time podcast instagram walls of time pod on twitter and our walls of time podcast.com website where you can connect with us there you can rate you can subscribe and the upcoming episodes with sonny osborne are gonna be the final two of season one although we may have a special surprise addition to season one yeah so be sure to stay tuned so you don't miss a thing subscribe uh, on your favorite podcast platforms so you do not miss an episode of the walls of time bluegrass podcast thanks for listening Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.